0: Thank you, Mark, for picking great music and for taking the lion's share of the work these past couple of weeks. I appreciate it. And thank you, um, Karen, for playing the piano and each of you for your role. Uh, music has always been sent an essential uh, part of worship, and I think our souls remind us of that frequently enough. So. And may the Lord bless our service. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we just come before your throne recognizing that you are the one true creator God, the almighty God, our creator, our redeemer. Thank you for your love and thank you for your truth that you've revealed to us in our own history and thank you for your word in the Bible that we can read, meditate and reflect on. May you bless the reading of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we started talking about um, Paul's story. In fact, what we really did was listen to Paul's story. As uh, we mentioned, uh, Acts chapter 26 is really the climax of how it is we view giving our own personal testimony. It's Uh, Paul, the great Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, so many of the books of the New Testament, who um, was just an incredible man, uh, a foundation, and a pillar of, of the church. This is the chapter where we see him really give his testimony. We've seen that in other places, in Acts, of course, but this chapter is really viewed as the place where we can look and sort of emulate what it is that Paul does. And one of the things we talked about last week was the importance of context as we look at this and remembering the situation that we found Paul in. Um, He is here in Caesarea. He has been on trial, but he's not currently on trial. He is a prisoner, but he has appealed to Rome. Uh, He's appealed to Caesar, and that's basically irrevocable. So that's where he's going to go. But as he's waiting for that, there happened to be this King Agrippa that came to town uh, to wish Festus, the governor of the area, a a welcoming since he had uh, just taken over being the governor from the prior governor, Felix. And this Agrippa, uh, who came from that family line we talked about, including Herod the Great, uh, Herod Antipas, and others, a very dangerous uh, but powerful family, Uh, was intrigued and wanted to hear Paul's story. And that's the context. And Paul was ready. And so we find Paul in this room with uh, the Jewish leaders who had been trying to uh, murder him for years at this point. Uh, He's also shackled to a Roman soldier, and there are many in the room. Uh, Of course, Governor Festus is present and King Agrippa II is present and Paul has begun to defend, not himself, but to defend his faith. He is there for one reason and that's to share the good news and he does it in an incredible um, and calm way. We're going to continue looking at that this morning. We kind of left off with Paul focusing on the concept of the resurrection and we spent some time talking about the statement he says, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead and how that was sort of a philosophical question that anybody in the room could sort of agree um, it's not incredible that God should be able to raise the dead. And once they agree to that sound logic, it sort of opens the door for what Paul is about to share with them. We also spent a little time looking at Paul's approach to his testimony, which we'll continue to do today. But remember, he found some commonalities with his accusers. He didn't judge them or carry on in anger, but found things in common. In specific, there were three commonalities. One, a common purpose. He said, that we earnestly serve the same God both day and night. He acknowledges that though the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him for specific causes, being his belief and the new church's belief in Jesus Christ as a risen Lord, that they still served the same God, that their zeal to kill him was in their minds a service to the same God. He found commonality there. The second was a common hope. Uh, They did all agree that there is a Messiah. There was no question a Messiah is to come, that uh, resurrection is true, and eternal life awaits both Jew and Gentile alike, Uh, the issue being for Paul that that would only come through the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, But there was still a common hope for a life ever after, a resurrection and a Messiah. And then the third common hope he found was, interestingly enough, to eliminate the way the third thing in common was the desire to eliminate the way the new church Paul at one time was part of that he said I too used to do everything I could in my power to track uh, these believers in Jesus down and bring them to punishment and so he had those three items in common with his accusers and with those who are listening to the accusations before he even proceeded with his testimony. And so we pick up today uh, a little bit where we left off, starting in verse 9. Let's read that together. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So Paul here, in these next sentences that he's sharing as he's talking to King Agrippa, is basically providing the king context for his own testimony. Um, He's basically saying, as he's about to go into the third uh, retelling in the book of Acts of the road to Damascus account, he's basically setting up the context of what's going on, that I, Paul, used to do what these very accusers are are trying to do to me here today. Um, And then he moves on to say that basically that all changed one day. And it's a very, a very savvy approach that Paul is taking. Uh, he knows the king isn't dumb. He knows that the king is actually a very respected man, a liked man, very educated, especially in the Jewish culture and their beliefs. He knew the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies. He understood what was going on in that day and time. And as he's about to share his own story, He basically takes the circumstance that they are all in there right now at the moment in that that Paul's being accused and that his accusers are there telling him, you know, you're trying to convert people to Christianity and we're going to kill you for it and the king is part of this circumstance. Paul's basically taking that context and saying, as I give you my story, I was one of these men one day. I, on the road to Damascus, did what these guys are doing i'm trying to kill people like me but because of the road to damascus it all changed king agrippa and i want to tell you how and why Uh, it made the story that paul is about to tell relatable it made it tangible it was relevant it was something that tied into the experience that the king himself finds himself in and so he then moves then to the highlight of his personal testimony, this road to Damascus account, beginning in verses 12. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. I want to take a break here to just observe a couple of things that we connect to the other piece of what's going on here. Remember, Paul is, yes, sharing his testimony. That is his focus. But to the others in the room, he is also a man who is accused of something when he is really innocent. And there is something to learn here that I think we should pay attention to. And that is that there are times in our life where each of us are accused of things when we're really innocent. And we can ask how it is that you know we handle those situations. Yes, there are those terrible circumstances we hear about where people end up going to prison for many years um, and then end up getting set free because some new evidence comes to light. And those are the extremes, but each of us goes through those times where we are either directly accused or feel accused of things it can happen in our relationships it can happen in the workplace Um, there's lots of places that that happens to and just looking at Paul's circumstance gives us some clues as to how we can handle that and the first is that if you're innocent hang on to the power of the truth Paul's innocent he's been essentially declared innocent uh, except that he has appealed to Caesar. I mean, they've said, and they will say again by the end of this chapter, there's, he hasn't done anything that deserves you know, punishment. So he is innocent and he's being accused. And what we see is a Paul who's not afraid of that, that consequence. And, and again, the power is because his intention in the circumstance is to glorify God. For him, it's all about living his daily life as miserable as it might be in chains because his focus is on God the potential earthly consequences to this that he's being accused of are less and it's the strength of the truth that he holds on to john 8:32. jesus says the truth will set you free when you're accused or feel accused hang on to the truth if you're innocent hang on to the truth that you know that to be true and trust the lord What do the innocent have to fear? False consequences, of course. We've talked about wrongful imprisonment. It could be a stained reputation that's a result. Pressure on your relationships. There can be financial consequences. People bring people to court all the time and sue for all sorts of things. Hang on to the truth if you're innocent. Remembering, uh, as a good DC Talk song said, the deepest seeds still find the light of day. There's a trust there. Secondly, don't get angry. Don't give the accuser cause to question your character. What we see with Paul is that he never once lets his character lapse. And that speaks volumes. These people are looking to Paul right now. And in fact, King Agrippa wanted. He didn't have to. He wanted to hear Paul. Paul's presentation thus far, and as we'll continue to see, doesn't give anyone in that room a single cause to question him and his character. If a person, I think, walked into that room, never having heard of Paul, uh, comes from a foreign land, is not savvy with the, the Jewish culture and the issues of the day, I mean, if they were truly objective and walked into that room that day, And listened and observed the Jewish leaders and the Roman government and Paul. I believe that because of how Paul handled the situation, his tone of voice, the words he's using, and the way he presents himself, that they would believe Paul for that reason alone. Anger was steeped and brewing in everything that the Jewish leaders were doing in that room. They wanted nothing more than Paul's death. People can pick up on that. Paul was peaceful. He was calm. He was chained, but peaceful, calm, and logical. So which one does the truly objective listener believe? So, as we get back onto the main track, take that with you. If you stand accused or feel accused, hang on to the truth of, of the innocence if you're innocent and secondly don't sacrifice your character remain calm don't get angry trust the Lord in verse 12 Paul starts off this testimony by saying on one of these journeys and he is speaking specifically to King Agrippa here and again he's saying I was the chief persecutor of Christians. I was just like these guys in this room here today. Without needing to connect the dots for Agrippa, we can trust that Agrippa could connect these dots. Agrippa understood clearly that Paul was taking the experiences they are all now sharing and tying it Paul's personal testimony. As he talks about the road to Damascus, it is directly connected with the experience they're now sharing. And that's going to allow King Agrippa to draw his own conclusions and observations. Paul isn't gonna see the need to do this himself. He's gonna trust that the Holy Spirit is working. Paul just took the moment and seized it and used the right story and presented it the right way that God would use it in Agrippa. Some things about his testimony are it's at the right moment. Um, The story speaks to the situation that they're all in. Again, it's tangible. It's relatable. The road to Damascus is a place the king would note about, uh, and we see that it's going to be convicting. I think that this personal experience that King Agrippa is going through is now going to forever be connected in Agrippa's mind to the story that Paul is about to share. And that's huge. And that's only possible because the story directly relates to a shared experience they're both going through. And Paul is going to say, I used to be this, now I am this. King Agrippa, this can work for you too. Paul's planting a seed. I mentioned uh, that this story, the road to Damascus that we just read, is now the third time that we've come across the story in the book of Acts. The first time is in Acts chapter nine and it's relayed there by Luke, who was an observer who's recounting the story as he's writing this, uh, this book. And then we see it again in Acts 22 as Paul relays the story in another circumstance. And then here is the third instance as Paul relays it as part of his his testimony. The first thing there as to why it shows up three times is you just need to know that that was a literary device um, in those times. When Luke puts that in the story three times, what he's doing is saying to us, the reader, this is very important. This account is is too important. We need to put it in there multiple times. It might seem like common sense, but it is intentional. It was a true literary device that's used to shine light on this particular story. But I think you'll see that there is something to be gleaned by comparing the three instances. This morning, I'm just going to compare the first and the third. The second and the third are very similar, but the first instance coming from Luke's point of view, and this third instance, which Luke writes, but coming from Paul's point of view, when you compare them, gives us some things to learn. If you've never sat down and read them side by side, maybe that's something to, to do today before or after your Sunday afternoon nap. Um, read, the, read the stories, Acts 9 and 26, just for yourself, and see, see what the Lord does with that but here's a few things to compare. In the first instance in Acts 9, Paul is still Saul before God changes his name to Paul. Paul, in the first instance, is the antagonist. He is Saul on an errand of evil, the chief persecutor of the Christians. That is the first instance. In this instance, same story, Saul is now Paul. You know, that's a key difference. He's already Paul. He's a changed man speaking from his point of view at this time. And in this instance, as you read what we just wrote, it's very clear that Paul comes off as the protagonist, not the antagonist of the story. What the comparison does is shows Paul's life before Christ and then Paul's life after Christ. And notice there's a different point of view. Before Christ, Luke is observing the situation from one point of view. And here, as Paul's giving his testimony, it's a different point of view. This is what God has done to change my life. It's the same story. You'll notice when you compare the two that the facts don't change, but the point of view changes. Kind of like if you and I were to a travel somewhere together and there was an experience that we both shared and then we came back here and got on the stage and told everybody about that experience Uh, though it would be the same story you and i would have a different point of view just because we're different people uh, different things might matter to us Our, our life experiences are different what drives us emotionally uh, is different. The things we hang on to mentally are different. For all of those reasons, the same facts come out of both of our mouths, but from two totally uh, different points of view. And, and that's where it's helpful to compare the two. In the first instance, we see God speaking in Acts 9 to Ananias. Uh, God sends Ananias to find Paul, and Ananias pushes back because he's afraid. In Acts 9.13, Ananias says, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And of course, God sends Ananias anyway. Paul is God's chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles. But in this instance, as Paul recounts the same story, no mention of Ananias. It's from Paul's perspective And instead of Ananias being afraid, as Luke observes, what we see here is Paul himself recalling being afraid. In this instance, in verse 14, God says to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Why does he say this to Paul? What does that even mean? We've talked about this I'm sure plenty of times in church but as a refresher to kick against the goads is an old Greek proverb having to do with raising an oxen and trying to get it used to doing the work it's supposed to do. Uh, there would be this uh, steel or a rather iron bar with these spikes on it and as the new oxen is trying to figure out how to do the work it would fight and kick against this thing called a goad and as you would kick it You know, the spikes would hit it and it would hurt the oxen. And so the more the oxen fights back, the more pain the oxen incurs. And in time, it finally realizes it's just better to go ahead and do the work. So that's what it means. Um, The proverb means useless resistance. Or for you Star Trek fans, resistance is futile. You're welcome. So, Paul, you're kicking against the goads. What does that mean? means Paul's afraid. And then he follows it up with a promise to Paul. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. God tells that to Paul because he knows Paul's afraid. The first instance, Ananias is afraid to go to Paul. Here, Paul is saying, I was scared too. I was scared too, even though I saw this heavenly light And heard this voice and fell to the ground and many of us were part of this miracle I'll be honest with you I was afraid and God told me you're kicking against the goads that even indicates that God had been working on Paul prior to this road experience this road experience just happened to be the last straw before he decided to finally accept the Lord and trust him And then God reminds him, I am trustworthy. I will rescue you from your own people. And how many times in this last couple of weeks alone have we seen the Jewish leaders trying to kill him and Paul's constantly rescued? You know, God's keeping his word. So in the first instance, Ananias is afraid to approach Paul. Here it's Paul that's afraid, but God's message to both of them is the same. Go, and they do. Paul's testimony as he's giving it to the king is passively asking the king without saying the words, King Agrippa, are you kicking against the goads? That's what Paul's story is saying without Paul having to be so direct. It's tact. It's not in his face. It's not judgmental. It's not pushy. Agrippa can draw this conclusion on his own Just trusting in the Holy Spirit's work and using Paul's story. Paul's the vessel. The Holy Spirit does the work. That's the theme through all of this. In the first instance, it's Paul who is blinded by a heavenly light. And Ananias would place his, you know the story, would place his hands on Paul's eyes and says, Jesus has sent me to you so that you, Paul, may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit and then Paul regains sight, it's Acts chapter nine. But in this instance, as Paul, not Luke, recounts the story, Paul is here, already, standing in the presence of the Gentiles. And it's not Ananias that Jesus is sending to Paul, but it's Paul that Jesus is sending to the Gentiles. It doesn't change the fact that Ananias was there and did exactly what he said. The facts aren't different, but the perspective is. Paul's perspective is here today as I stand before you Gentiles and chiefly you, the king of these Gentiles, I'm here to tell you this is what God did for me. He said he's going to send me to you and here I am. Here I am. And he's basically saying, without saying it, I'm going to open your eyes just as God used Ananias to open mine. So Jesus opens Paul's eyes through Ananias and Jesus is going to open the eyes of the Gentiles through Paul. Verse 17, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. Paul's metaphor uh, of I once was blind and now can see or from darkness to light he uses that one phrase in almost every single one of his writings. That is Paul's phrase. Turn from darkness to light. It's not saying from something that wasn't to something that is. It's saying we've we've been blind. Me too, first, in fact. But also you. Let the light shine. Paul's story here is... It's cutting. It's cutting, but like a very, uh, like a scalpel, you know? It doesn't hurt. It's a fine, precision cut. It's directed squarely at the king. Paul says King Agrippa three times. In verse 2, he says, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today. Verse 7, King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Verse 13, as we just read, about noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven. It's personal to the king. Paul's story is gentle. It's compassionate. It's all about Paul. It's not about Agrippa, though it's absolutely about Agrippa. It's for these chains I'm here, right? But the story is all about Paul. It's my life. The one thing I can speak to better than anyone else is my own life. Let your life be the story. Let the Holy Spirit be God and do the work. Everyone in that room knows that Paul isn't just talking to King Agrippa by talking to each one of them. That's, That's how a good, like a Billy Graham is, you know. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what your background is. I mean, if the leader of communist Cuba can invite a preacher, what does that say about the power of the right people using God's Word? There's a tact, and Paul had that. Uh, Paul had that as he stands before the king. I also want to take a moment to acknowledge that we don't want to, go so far to say that there isn't a time for boldness Paul is being bold remember his life is at stake Paul is sharing the gospel let's not forget the context of who's all in the room when I say it's gentle and compassionate it is also bold it is bold there is a time and place for boldness there's a time and place and we see it in Paul's letter to the churches where he goes after them for certain things that need correcting there is a time for that But boldness can look a lot of things. And I think most days, boldness looks like not being ashamed of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's boldness. But it doesn't need to mean judgmental. It doesn't need to mean pushy. It doesn't need to mean in your face. What does bold mean? Maybe think about that if you haven't for a while. Verse 17 I am sending you to the Gentiles. This is Paul talking to the Gentiles. This is what Jesus said to me. I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul transitions at this point to making the story very personal now to King Agrippa. And he invokes his name now a fourth time in verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, and then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike, lest we think that he's only talking to the king. He's talking to everyone who will hear him. To small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond circling back to last week when he set the stage with all those commonalities I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And so Paul delivers the gospel message. Now that he's delivered that message it is in the hands of the people everyone in that room who heard it. It is now their choice, and it's ours to either accept the testimony of Paul or reject it. Those in this room, those at home, wherever you are, if you have heard these words of Paul, you have but two choices. Are they true or are they false? The choice is yours, not ours, not mine, not Paul's. But they are one man's testimony. A real man who lived, breathed, walked this earth, has given this gospel message about Jesus Christ and how it has changed his life. Are you willing to let that same gospel message change your life? How long have you kicked against the goads knowing that the Lord Jesus is calling you Today's the day we invite you, as Paul has, this message (laughs) to King Agrippa 2,000 years later is still being heard today, and we still have the same choice. And then in verse 24, Festus, Paul, are you out of your mind? Paul, he just jumps into the middle of this. He stops everything. Your great learning is driving you insane. I mean, I sort of imagine the room at that point was dead silent. That's just sort of how it is when somebody has taken the time to deliver their story in this way. I'm not talking about a crazy down at the street corner, but somebody who's developed a relationship with the people in the room that's delivering his message, making his point, sharing the gospel, I think it was rock dead silent. You could have heard a pin drop. And then Festus had had enough. Paul, you're out of your mind. I'm going to give you my personal opinion. This, just one one guy to the rest of you, what I think was going on here. I think Paul got to Festus. I think Paul got to King Agrippa. I think that everyone in that room could see that they were listening i think it moved on them and that created a real problem festus had just replaced the fired governor felix fired because he couldn't keep control of the rebellion going on amongst the jewish people that was in a few short years going to lead to war And this Festus, who's now three days on the job, is standing here with these chief priests and Jewish leaders that are still thirsty for Paul's blood. And I think Festus was like, this this isn't looking good. And remember, they had kind of a difficult relationship. The Jewish people wanted Paul's blood. They had an interest in stopping the spread of this new gospel of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we're told, for example, in Acts 24, 27, that Felix left Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. So we see the Roman government is interested and these specific governors who are responsible for these Jewish people had a real interest in keeping them happy, to keep the money flowing to Caesar Nero, to keep the whole situation copacetic. In Acts 25, 3, we're told again that the Jewish leaders were seeking a favor from now Festus. So both Felix fired and now Festus, the Jews want a favor from. And I think Festus is conflicted. He needs to keep control of this situation. He needs to not aggravate the Jewish leaders more. But we're given a clue in 2518 when Festus tells Agrippa, quote, when Paul's accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. I was at a loss as how to investigate such matters. He's conflicted. I need to keep the Jewish people happy for my own life, but at the same time, I kind of believe Paul. So why does he jump in? Why does he call Paul a madman and a man of great learning? And Pastor Ken talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago. My feeling is that Festus can see the eyes of Agrippa soften. I think he can see the pupils of King Agrippa's eyes start to dilate. I think he can read the relaxing lines on Agrippa's face. I think Festus knows Agrippa is feeling the same way Festus feels, that maybe there's something to all of this. Maybe Paul is right. But I think Festus is also feeling the hairs on the back of his head prickle as the growing anger from the Jewish leaders in the room is reaching a boiling point as Paul shares his gospel message. He couldn't take any more of Paul. The Jewish leaders wouldn't take any more of Paul. If Agrippa was to side with Paul, it would be open war. But little did they know, open war is going to be inevitable. So, for Festus, or even worse, Agrippa to side with Paul. Either way, it would mean tragedy. Sometimes, choosing to follow Christ comes with risk. Sometimes, we have a difficult choice to make. For some, it does mean turning away from your old life. It can mean turning your back on friends. It can even mean turning away from family. It's not what you want, but it can mean that. Turning from one life to a new life comes with consequences. It can mean turning away from your livelihood. There can be heavy consequences to choosing to follow Christ. For many we might grow up in a Christian home and it's just more of a life of learning and growing. And that's great. But I think those of us who are like that also admire those who have that clean break, too. I think there's times in my life, certainly, where it's like, you know, you're growing in your faith or developing or you're dealing with doubts and such that you just sort of admire the guy who's like, man, I was once lost, let me tell you, and now I'm found. That's a clean break and that's nice. But that guy or that lady, you know, they walked away from a whole life. There are consequences to choosing Christ. There would have been consequences here for Festus and Agrippa if they were going to even think about buying into Jesus Christ being true and what Paul is saying being true. In Matthew 19, verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for somebody who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for somebody who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's not because they're rich. It's not the money. It's because it's hard. There's too much to lose, perhaps. You are inclined to trust the physical things of this world rather than just trust the Lord. Festus and Agrippa, we talked about context last week. They're at the top tier. They're the aristocracy. Even the Jewish leaders in the room might have some sympathy. They had a lot to lose. Their cushy relationship, perhaps, with Rome. So for these guys, there was too much to lose. But Paul, who's shackled to a guard, has nothing to lose. And so he fires back at Festus. I am not insane, Most excellent Festus in verse 25. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it wasn't done in a corner. In short, he's saying, Festus, please, we all know what's going on here, it's been going on for years. The light is shining. It will not be hid under a bushel. And by the way, I was speaking to the king, and I'm not quite done yet. What does he have to lose? And for the fifth time, he uses his name. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. How precious is that? That One short sentence, I know you do, tells us a volume about King Agrippa. It tells us a lot about this story. And so does Agrippa's response in verse 28. Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? If there was any question that Paul and King Agrippa were dancing the tango together in that room, there's no question. They both know what's going on here. Paul is sharing the gospel to King Agrippa. King Agrippa knows it. And the last thing King Agrippa did there was reject it. He left the door open. Short time or long. He's not ready. Think of the consequences. But don't assume, don't assume, that he was opposed to it. Paul's sharing the truth of the risen Lord Jesus. I think Agrippa is starting to believe it. In verse 29, Paul replies, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Confirmation that in Paul's mind, he's not just speaking to King Agrippa. He's speaking to each and every one in that room, to you and I, to anyone who will hear, except for these chains. And then the king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. Paul's words here, I think, are the key to giving our testimony, short time or long. We don't need to use judgment. We don't need to drive people away and we don't need to take too much on ourselves when we share the gospel with others short time or long it's the work of the holy spirit first corinthians 3 6 i planted the seed apollos watered it god has been making it grow it's god's work it's god who brings the growth your testimony your story is one part You may be the one who leads another to Christ. You may just be the one who plants the seed. Just don't be the one who pushes them away. I also want to just take a moment to acknowledge the differences between spiritual gifts. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've got a spiritual gifts uh, series coming up in the fall, I believe, is planned. So we'll talk more about this uh, this fall. But You know, the gift of evangelism is specified as one of the gifts. It doesn't mean that only those with that gift should evangelize. We're all called in the Great Commission to share. But we have to acknowledge there are some who have that gift. And for those, let them go there, door to door, street corner. You know, if the Lord's called them, if the Lord's called you, if evangelism's your gift, this isn't to dissuade you. You know, there are people who just, this is just what God uses, is is them to just Turn people to know the Lord but for most of us it's it's the short time or long it's being willing and ready to give explanation for the hope that you have it's living your life in such a way that people are drawn to you building relationships with those people and then at the right time sharing your story that they may see that the Lord can make a difference in their lives too We don't see a Paul here who feels a pressure to convert Agrippa. But at the same time, you do see a Paul who is in chains for the sake of seeing it through. So a few questions for you as we part. Are you willing to do what it takes to live your life in such a way that it draws people to know the Lord? Are you willing to have the conversations and to build the relationships which lead to the opportunity to share your faith at work, home, school, wherever it's at? Are you developing those relationships and seeking those opportunities in boldness to share at the right time? Do you let your light shine, or do you hide it under a bushel? In other words, when an opportunity comes to share, do you feel like, oh, I'm at work, or ooh, this might make this person uncomfortable, or do you let your light shine? Don't hide your light under a bushel. And do you know that even in this, you need to trust the Lord to do His work and that it is not you who is personally responsible for another's salvation. Let the Lord do His work and let Him use you as part of that. Verse 31, after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or even imprisonment. King Agrippa said to Festus, you know, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Perhaps Paul's appeal to Caesar was the best thing that Festus and Agrippa could have hoped for too afraid of the consequences to their earthly life, I wonder, did they sacrifice their eternal life? There's no indication one way or another that they ever accepted Jesus. But we do know, as we said last week, that centuries later the Roman Empire would accept Christianity as the dominant faith of the empire. So I do wonder if that didn't all start in this room. Either way, Paul saved Festus and Agrippa from their earthly no-win scenario, yet another sacrifice Paul would make and the Lord would use as Paul sets sail for Rome and the final two chapters of the book of Acts next week. Hope to see you then. God bless.